0: Welcome to the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast, your source for expert insights on industry consensus standards and ASSP technical publications. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Trenching and excavation is some of the most potentially hazardous work in the construction industry. With the many challenges workers face, it's important for safety professionals to take the proper steps to mitigate those hazards so workers can stay safe throughout the project. Here to discuss the steps safety professionals can take to protect workers during trenching and excavation operations is Eric Voigt. Eric is Vice President and Assistant Director at Connor Strong and Bucklew. He is also a member of the ANSI ASSP A-10 Committee for Construction and Demolition Operations. Uh, Eric, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I look
0: forward to this. Okay, great. Let's get started. Now, as, as I mentioned at the top, trenching and excavation can be potentially hazardous work for a lot of reasons. So I thought we could start out by talking about maybe some of the specific hazards that workers face in those kind of environments and the most important steps that safety professionals can take in preparing for a trenching and excavation project before the work begins.
1: Uh, absolutely, Scott, and, and like you mentioned, there are so many hazards that, that are out there as it relates to trenching and excavation, most notably being uh, cave-ins and, and collapses. This is not the top killer of people in the construction industry, uh, but we still do lose way too many people every year just due to lack of planning as as they're getting ready for this type of work. That is one of the most critical things Uh, before we put any shovel into the ground before we bring any excavator or heavy piece of equipment we have to plan for all of the hazards that we could encounter and that starts even before you get out on the site we have to make sure that that we call the one call 811 whatever your number is in your locality And have them come out and mark for any known hazards that could be in the area. Once they come out and do that markings, one of the things I always talk to any client, any prospective company that's getting ready to dig, is photograph the area. Make sure that you have an indication, uh, because let's be honest, those markings are not always accurate. uh, And that's where some of the risk comes in. Uh, So as you're preparing, as you're getting your documents, as you're understanding what hazards you may face other than just the soil and any underground utilities, you have to take into consideration the type of soil you're digging. Um, One of the things when you're talking about trenching and excavation is most people have an understanding of what soil is going to do. But I don't care what kind of soil you have, whether it's your, your tight sea, sandy soils, or whether it's your stable rocks. Mother Nature will always try and fill in any type of void we put in it. It's common nature. Uh, people that go to the beach in the summer, when you're building your sandcastle moat and you see the sand fall in, or whether you're driving up in the mountains and you see that sign on the side of the road that says, caution, falling rock. Those are signs we're we're telling you. The soil wants to fill back in. It's just due to the natural pressures uh, of any void we create. So once you understand that that hazard is always going to be there, then you can plan on different ways that you can go through And minimize those risks to you, whether it's through a protective structure, whether it's through some sort of of sloping or benching. There are many options within the trenching standard that you can choose, choosing the right one that matches your task. Talking about
0: soil types, you mentioned a couple of them there, but I wonder if You can kind of walk through the different soil types that safety professionals you may encounter on on a work site and uh, the process of how to know, you know, what it is you're working with.
1: Sure. Well, according to the OSHA regulations, um, there are four soil types. Uh, There's stable rock, which is our our most stable structure. Uh, It pretty much uh, speaks its own mind. You have type A which is some of our clays, some of our solid materials. I can give you the the, the measurements, but it um, has an unconfined compressive strength of 1.5 tons per square foot or greater. You have type B, which are your silts. Um, your materials that want to stick together, but aren't, aren't super strong. They have an unconfined compressive strength of anywhere from 0.5 tons per square foot up to 1.5 tons. And then you have type C soils, which are our gravels, our sand material that no matter what you want to do to it, just doesn't really want to stay together. And that has an unconfined compressive strength of less than 0.5 tons per square foot. Now, here's where the fun comes in with excavation. The standards require you to do one of two things when you're analyzing soil. You can either say, I'm not going to analyze it and assume it is type C soil and you pick your your protective structures accordingly. If you are going to grade your soil, you must do at least one manual test and one visual test. Now. With the majority of those tests, you're doing multiple uh, a visual. Just to give you an example, a visual test according to the standard is: Do you see water? Do you see a layered structure? How is the soil coming out as you're digging? That's three visual tests you can do as you're standing there watching. So I've I've never been a proponent of saying you only need to do one because with excavations and soil analysis, it really is subjective to the person doing the analysis. Uh, The manual tests can be anything such as the ribbon test, uh, the dry strength test, a pocket penetrometer uh, using a, a Tor vein, any other mechanical tool with the manual tests unless you're using one of the tools it really depends on the size of particles you feel how well the material holds together when you roll it into a ribbon or uh, compose a thread test it, it there is not any one right I, there are right ways to do it but there's it's subjective to the way the person conducting the test feels like it is. So when I say that, uh, if you're doing the ribbon test, it's do you get it to hold a one eighth inch strength down to two inches, more than two inches? Is it an inch and a half? Is it, a quarter of an inch, does it not even form a ribbon? So it really is a subjective measure, which is why even completing just one may or may not give you a correct analysis of the true soil type. And it's one of the options when people are either being trained uh, in how to do soil analysis, you really have to get your hands dirty. It's not something that you can just step back and take a look and say, this looks like type C soil. You actually have to put your hands into the dirt uh, because it's something you, you may have to justify how you came up uh, with your determination.
0: That's a really good point. Now, taking that next step, so working from that soil type analysis, how can you then determine what are going to be the best protective systems for you to utilize in order to keep your workers safe over the course of a project?
1: Well, and and Scott, we probably should have started out uh, with one of the biggest things you have to identify for work is we have to identify who our competent person is going to be. That competent person will be the one that will determine, based on your depth, based on your width, based on your soil type, and based on the work processes that will be going, which protective structure is the best one for the workers. OSHA in the standards, uh, and even ANSI within their standards, gives you multiple options for how to protect employees. I think, unfortunately, most people go with uh, sloping and benching as their first choice because you already have the equipment out there in order to dig the excavation. But when you're dealing with type C soil, unless you're out in a wide open field, in most cases, to properly slope or bench an excavation, we just don't have the real estate in order to do that. But I think people are so accustomed to taking the shortcuts, not having that competent person evaluate truly the soil type and running the calculations to determine how wide we have to be and how deep we can be, uh, that people take it for granted. I know uh, up here in the Northeast, we do still use timber shoring. Uh, Anytime you're near a river or a heavy waterway, it is one of our strongest methods. Uh, It's a costly method. Uh, It's difficult to work in. Uh, But it's not the same as walking into an excavation and seeing a two by four and a piece of plywood leaning against the wall. You truly have to have the charts and the graphs in order to understand what size timbers you need. And when I say timbers, this is material you're probably not going to get at your local uh, hardware store. This is stuff you will get imported from a lumber yard, uh, just because of the sheer size and and structural strength for it. But your competent person has other options, whether it's a trench shield, a trench box. Um, There are many choices you can make, but that competent person has to base that on all of the relevant information they have on the soil. Okay, now some things you mentioned earlier—the
0: impact of Mother Nature on trenching and excavation, or really any type of construction work—and and with that, the, the the conditions on the on the site are always always changing. You know, day to day, potentially even hour to hour. So, how can safety professionals ensure that workers are able to operate safely as conditions change on a trenching and excavation site?
1: Well, that that's clearly written into all of the standards that uh, an evaluation has to be done by a competent person to verify protective structures and controls are in place to prevent a collapse and to protect workers. Uh, the standard also clearly states that that evaluation must be done any conditions change on the site. And when we talk about conditions changing, Uh, Whether it's uh, an afternoon thunderstorm, whether we're more into the fall and and we go from a day that's 70 degrees to one that's 30 degrees uh, and we have freezing and thawing, those are critical times because it just creates voids. The water, the moisture, freezing going from a solid back to a liquid uh, can drastically change how a trench is going to react. And for people that have never witnessed uh, the sheer force of a, a trench collapse, they're devastating. Uh, there are a couple of videos out there uh, that you've seen, probably the Oregon OSHA, one that was videotaped and, and where they actually caught a collapse while somebody was inside. Luckily, he jumped. Uh, just to see the amount of soil that comes down. One of the the training tips I used to do, um, and I still do it occasionally, is if you get a milk crate from your local grocery store, those things are generally 12 inch by 12 inch by 12 inch, so one cubic foot. If you put a trash can in there and find whatever soil is in your location, and fill it up as you're training. Have people set that on their lap. And it's going to weigh probably around 60 to 80 pounds, depending uh, on the type of soil you have. But when you explain that to people and say, okay, this is one cubic foot. When we switch that to one cubic yard, which is a lot, is a typical size of a backhoe bucket or an excavator bucket, we're now changing that... 100 pounds up to about 2,700 pounds. And if you're looking at that weight, a small 12 by 12, set it beside what you're getting ready to dig and say, you've people don't think about the sheer weight of the soil. You'll, a lot of trainers will talk about how one cubic yard is, is the equivalent of a car sitting on your chest. Well, it, it doesn't resonate to people until they're holding that much soil and you give them one cubic foot. And, and that's where we have to change people's minds because we all see Facebook and, and all the other posts where you see people buried in, at the beach where they cover them up with sand. Uh, and we don't think about it when we're, we're down in there And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, when there is a trench collapse, we're doing more of a recovery than we are doing a rescue. So it's getting people to understand the sheer magnitude. Um, And it doesn't have to be that deep. Everybody always says, "Well, well, you don't have to protect a trench or an excavation until you're greater than five feet. That's an incorrect statement you absolutely have to evaluate that trench because let's look at a typical um, municipal worker. We put a lot of our water and sewer lines about four feet underground. Well, if somebody has to lay on their back to weld underneath of a pipe or, or make a fitting, if he's laying on his back, is four feet too much for him? do we not need to protect them because the standard doesn't say we do a competent person has to evaluate what protection we need no matter what the depth is and that goes back to planning that's
0: that's that's a very good point and and a, and a good segue you were uh talking about training for those workers who find themselves you know, doing trenching and excavation projects doing this type of work what are the most important things for them to remember to protect themselves and their coworkers over the course of a project
1: the best thing workers can do to protect themselves is make sure there is some barrier between themselves and the soil whether it is a trench box a trench shield timber shoring or whether it's we remove the soil and take that out and create an opening. If there is no soil that can entrap them, then there's no soil that can bury them. So I think when we talk about trenching and excavation, uh, soil is by far our biggest hazard, uh, but any underground utility that we come in contact, whether we find a gas line we were not aware of, whether we come in contact with uh, high-voltage electric that is buried underground. There are so many hazards that have to be accounted for, uh, and it's constantly changing. So the the hazards can be controlled if people want to. It does take time. It does take effort, but it's the only way we're going to stop killing so many people and unfortunately what we find in, in a lot of cases it is the smaller contractors uh, generally less than 50 employees that make up the bulk of, of all fatalities in trenching and excavation so it, it's, it's helping some of the smaller companies that may not have the resources it is being vigilant and training through the local ASSP chapters. Uh, it's trying to network, trying to get the information out there so that people can make informed decisions. And it's not only based on time and money. It's we're taking the active steps to protect our, our workforce.
0: Absolutely. That's, uh, any Anything else you'd like to add about uh, trenching and excavation safety as we
1: wrap up? Well, some of the other things uh, I I do want to mention, the nice thing about the standard is this is a completely numbers-driven standard. It doesn't leave a lot of guesswork as to what you need to do. Uh, The numbers mean everything. The two feet to keep the spoil piles back. The four feet when we have to provide access to and from the trench. Five feet, where we're required to put in some sort of protective structure. Six foot, to include our fall protection. 20 foot, the maximum depth you can go before you need to get a a professional engineer uh, to review the protective structures you have in place. So while people say this standard gives you a lot of leeway, especially in the analysis, It doesn't give you a lot of leeway because it's a numbers driven standard and it forces you to make sure that as you're going through, you you look at it, you can evaluate it. But one of the most critical things I can tell anybody is if you have to get a tape measure out to determine whether you are at four foot 11 or five foot one to see if you have to put a protective structure in. You're playing with the standard and you're not protecting your workers. It doesn't matter what the depth is. We need to make sure that ultimately we're keeping that soil away from entrapping our workers, thus putting a rescue potential into a recovery.
0: Absolutely, I think that's a, that's a that's a good note to end on. So, uh, thank you so much again for coming on, Eric. I hope uh, our listeners will uh, take our conversation today and think about how they can use this information to better protect workers in trenching and excavation. Take a look at the the OSHA standards and the A ten twelve standard to uh, to make sure they're doing everything they can to uh, keep workers safe on uh, on construction sites. So, thank you again.
1: Thank you very much, Scott. We hope
0: you've enjoyed this episode of the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.